Okay, three, two, one. Oh my goodness. Good morning, good afternoon. Whatever it is for you, I hope you're having a fantastic day. My name is Zach Schaumler. This is Strong Opinion Sports. Thank you so very much for tuning in. Today's Friday, January 11th, and uh, I hope you've had a great week. I uh, had a fantastic week. One of my best friends in the world is home on leave from the Air Force. We've been hanging out all week. Uh, It's just been fantastic. I want to start with this today. I want to start with some NFL head coaches. Um, Six NFL teams have officially hired their head coaches. Again, I'll repeat that. Six NFL franchises have hired new NFL head coaches. Two NFL teams, the Bengals and the Dolphins, still do not have head coaches officially. We'll talk about them at the end, but I want to first go through all six teams that have hired NFL coaches. So first, the most exciting head coach to me was the New York Jets hired Adam Gase. And I think this is a fantastic, fantastic move. In my opinion, Adam Gase was fired way too prematurely in Miami. I thought really unjustly fired from the, by the Miami Dolphins. And so I love that the New York Jets, a division rival of the Miami Dolphins, were able to pick him up. I think that is fantastic. Um, look, I understand why Adam Gase was fired by the Dolphins. He was 23 and 25 and his three seasons there. But you got to understand, Adam Gase never had the right quarterback in Miami. He had ran Tannehill for three years. He was hurt every year. One year, he didn't play the entire season. They had to bring in Jay Cutler. Literally, here's how good of a coach Adam Gase is. This is for some perspective. He won a bunch without Ryan Tannehill, without his, quote, franchise quarterback, who, in my opinion, never panned out. But Adam Gase won games with Brock Osweiler at quarterback. I feel like that's enough said. You won games with Brock Osweiler, you can do anything. I think he's a great offensive mind. I think he's a wonderful head coach that, again, never really got a fair chance in Miami because of the problems the Dolphins had at quarterback. I know you can say, well, if Adam Gase is a quarterback guy, why wasn't Ryan Tannehill a better quarterback? A coach can only do so much. There's two ends of the bargain. The coach has to do his side. The quarterback has to do his part. Ryan Tannehill was never healthy. He didn't seem to quite develop as he should have with understanding of defenses. That's just work in the offseason. His accuracy kind of sucked. And I just, I think that Adam Gase never got a fair shot in Miami. I'm so glad he's going to the man, uh, to the New York Jets. I think the Jets are a great fit. Him and Sam Darnold. Sam Darnold has a great offensive coach. And Adam Gase finally has the quarterback he's always wanted with Sam Darnold. It's a great match. I think Adam Gase is going to be a home run with the New York Jets. In fact, I really think that this is now the beginning of the end for the Patriots dynasty. The AFC East, the Patriots division is getting much better. The Buffalo Bills have Josh Allen, their franchise quarterback. The Jets just got a great head coach. They have Sam Darnold, their franchise quarterback. I think, and Tom Brady's getting older, this is the beginning of the end for the New England Patriots. They still got a couple of years in the tank. But very soon, Josh Allen and or Sam Darnold is going to be dominating the AFC East. And we might forget very quickly about the New England Patriots. Oh, so let's go from the coach I love to the coach I'm very concerned for. The Packers hired Matt LaFleur to be their head coach. And uh, man, I don't know. I, I feel really bad for Matt LaFleur. This guy first worked with Sean McVay and the Rams a couple years ago. Matt LaFleur is a great coach. He was a Titans offensive coordinator last year. But the problem is Aaron Rodgers. I personally believe there's a, a chance this works. There's a small 
reason why Matt LaFleur could be successful as the Packers head coach. But here's my honest opinion. This is why I think it's going to be a big problem. Matt LaFleur has to deal with Aaron Rodgers. And Aaron Rodgers is kind of like, I think a great analogy is an 18-year-old kid who is a senior in high school. In America, when you turn 18, you're officially an adult. And teachers, parents, nobody can really tell you what to do because you're an adult. You make your own decisions. That doesn't mean you still don't need help, though. I mean, I I know a lot of people that they're 18, they think they're actually 40. And an 18-year-old kid still needs guidance, still needs help. You still need some parenting. But you're 18, so legally, you don't have to listen to anything anyone tells you. Aaron Rodgers is kind of like that. He thinks he has all the answers. He doesn't want to listen to any other coaching. But he still needs to be coachable. This is who Aaron Rodgers is. He's got a bad attitude. He gives a lot of death stares to people. He's sulky. He doesn't always run the offense the way it's supposed to be run. He runs kind of his own style stuff. He doesn't work within the system. And I don't know how you're going to bring in a new offensive coach with a great new system and Aaron Rodgers isn't going to somehow get frustrated and do his own thing. He thinks he knows better. I don't think Aaron Rodgers is coachable. And and again, Matt LaFleur might be a fantastic head coach. But uh, I don't know. So Matt LaFleur is 39 years old. The the Packers' new head coach, 39. Just four years older than Aaron Rodgers, the starting quarterback, is 35. That's going to be a weird dynamic. You think Aaron Rodgers is going to listen to a 39-year-old coach? No way. I don't buy it at all. There's a possibility it works. Here's why it could work. Everybody in the Packers' corner feels like the problem was the old head coach, Mike McCarthy. The reason why people think Mike McCarthy was a problem for the Packers is that his offense was not creative enough. He was relying too heavily on Aaron Rodgers' arm to make great throws against man coverage rather than using interesting creative concepts to get guys more open. Yeah, I agree with that. Again, I think it, Mike McCarthy's offense did rely heavily on Aaron Rodgers' arm and receivers making great catches. So people think Aaron Rodgers needs more creative play calling. Guys will be more wide open. And, you know, well, Matt LaFleur, he worked with the Rams and Sean McVay, so clearly he understands concepts. A lot of people believe Aaron Rodgers is getting the offense that he needs. Maybe. And look, here's the other thought. So Aaron Rodgers supposedly is getting what he needs, and Matt LaFleur is getting the best quarterback he's ever had. That's great. He's a really talented quarterback. The guy used Blaine Gabbert last year at quarterback with Tennessee. That would be frustrating. So I think that Matt LaFleur feels like he's getting a prized racehorse. We're going to win a lot of races because this horse is far better than the last one. The problem is that racehorse, Aaron Rodgers, he bucked the last guy that rode him off. He wants to do his own thing. And so maybe Aaron Rodgers gets the play calling he needs. And maybe Matt LaFleur gets his dream quarterback. But time will tell. And I think Aaron Rodgers' ego is too much of a problem for Matt LaFleur to be successful in Green Bay. Man, there are a bunch of interesting coaches that have been hired. Um, The Browns hired Freddie Kitchens to be their next head coach. I love that. I think that's fantastic. Freddie Kitchens, uh, when Hugh Jackson was fired by the Cleveland Browns halfway through the season, Freddie Kitchens became the Browns' offensive coordinator. Him and Baker Mayfield together thrived. It was fantastic. Baker Mayfield broke the rookie record for touchdown passes with 27. And my fear, honestly, this is why keeping Freddie Kitchens around in the Cleveland Browns' organization is a good move. When the Browns fired Hugh Jackson, my fear was, okay, wow, crap. He's going to have to go to his second, he's going to have 
two offensive systems in just his first two seasons. You're going to go from one offensive coordinator, Hugh Jackson or Todd Haley, Freddie Kitchens, then another third one. That's bad. You need some continuity. And you get continuity when you keep Freddie Kitchens around. It's good for Baker Mayfield because he can learn and expand on the offense he already knows rather than having to restart from scratch and learn a whole new offense. That's fantastic. Um, The one kind of, this is not necessarily fair to Freddie Kitchens. I acknowledge that. But I do wonder. So Freddie Kitchens has never been a head coach before. Um, I, I like the idea of the Browns bringing in Chuck Pagano to be the new defensive coordinator for the Cleveland Browns. The Browns fired Greg Williams, interim head coach. He was a defensive coordinator. He's gone, and I, I don't know. He did a good job. Thank you for your service. If you're a Browns fan, I'm not, but I'm just saying that's probably how Browns fans feel. But uh, in Greg Williams' history, we've known him to be a guy who argues, who fights, who doesn't necessarily get along. And so, I don't know. I, uh, I, I don't mind letting him walk away. And I really do think the Browns should take a hard look at Chuck Pagano, the former Colts head coach at being their defensive coordinator. He'd be a great assistant head coach. I like him. He's Remember, his history, Chuck Pagano was once the Ravens defensive coordinator. He did a lot of great stuff with Ray Lewis. He was a kind of a mastermind at understanding scheme and doing a good job. Now, he failed miserably as a Colts head coach. I can acknowledge that. Chuck Pagano kind of fell off a cliff. He had some good years with Andrew Luck and then really fell off a cliff. Here's why I think Chuck Pagano would be great as a defensive coordinator for the Browns. Not a head coach, but he's been there before. His experience, his failures, I think could be valuable in giving Freddie Kitchens some perspective, working as an advisor to Freddie Kitchens, and also using his understanding of defenses to be a great defensive coordinator. I know Chuck Pagano, that name a lot of people go, oh, but he failed to the Colts. But he still understands defense. And his experience as a head coach could be valuable to the Browns to help Freddie Kitchens, a guy who's never been a head coach before. So I love Freddie Kitchens being retained as a Browns head coach, and I think the Browns should take a hard look at maybe hiring Chuck Pagano to be their defensive coordinator. Uh, Another head coach that was hired, the Cardinals hired Cliff Kingsbury, the former Texas Tech head coach, to be their new head coach. Remember last season, Cliff Kingsbury struggled Texas Tech. He got fired. And so this is what's interesting. He got fired by Texas Tech, And then literally, no joke, Cliff Kingsbury was a USC offensive coordinator for all of three weeks. He got hired by USC, literally was there for three weeks, and now he got hired by the Cardinals. It's a good hire by the Cardinals. We'll start with the Cardinals first. Um, We saw, it's interesting, we saw Sean McVay go to the Rams, help a second-year quarterback, Jared Goff, understand football and really help his career. Then we saw Matt Nagy go to the Chicago Bears. And he helped a second-year quarterback, Mitchell Trubisky, really build his career into something that's respectable. Cliff Kingsbury is the offensive mind that can help the Cardinals quarterback, Josh Rosen, as he enters his second year in the NFL. It's great. Young quarterbacks need good offensive coaching. If you look at, if we can recap Josh Rosen's rookie year, Steve Wilkes, his head coach, got fired. Mike, ah, crap, what's his name? Mike something got fired. The offensive coordinator for the Cardinals got fired as well. Head coach got fired. Offensive coordinator for Josh Rosen got fired in the middle of the season. That's really ugly. And so I think it's it's really, really good for a guy like Josh Rosen to have a solid, really great offensive mind as your head coach who can help develop you and help develop Josh Rosen into something that we respect and maybe is a Pro Bowl level quarterback. 
So it's interesting. Cliff Kingsbury is good for the Cardinals. But Cliff Kingsbury leaving USC and going to the Cardinals, it's a big red flag for USC. What it looks like is Cliff Kingsbury got to USC. He checked it out, realized this is a mistake, and decided to bail. I believe Clay Helton, USC's head coach's days, are numbered. Clay Helton is on the hot seat already. And he really needed Cliff Kingsbury to help him revamp the offense. Now that Cliff Kingsbury is not going to be there to do that for USC, oh, it's, it's not good. Again, it looks like Cliff Kingsbury got to USC, looked around at everything they had, met with coaches and said, hmm, not a good fit. I'm going to take off because he left. And so USC ends up looking really, really bad in the wake of Cliff Kingsbury leaving. The Buccaneers hired Bruce Arians to be their head coach. It's the fifth coach that I want to talk about today. It's fantastic. I love it. Um, I am a huge, huge fan of Bruce Arians. He's a former Arizona Cardinals head coach. He's the reason why Andrew Luck had a great rookie year. Then he moved on to the Cardinals. He revamped Carson Palmer's career before Bruce Arians briefly retired. He's a no BS kind of guy. He gets right to the point. He tells you exactly what he thinks. And that, I believe, could be really, really good for the Buccaneers quarterback, Jameis Winston. He's got some discipline issues. He's had discipline issues in the past off the field. And so I really hope that stops with Bruce Arians. Another thing that's interesting is the Buccaneers hired former Jets head coach Todd Bowles to be their defensive coordinator. I think it's a great move. Todd Bowles, as the former head coach of the Jets, he failed there. But he's still a great defensive mind. Guys fight really hard for him. He has a great understanding of defense. Knows a lot of great defensive schemes. With Bruce Arians running the offense and Todd Bowles running the defense, it's very possible the Buccaneers make a dramatic turnaround. Um, and I, th- I feel really good about that. I think the, the Jameis Winston needed someone to get him in line. Bruce Arians is the man to do that. No BS. Let's get this done. I'm going to tell you how it is. I believe Jameis Winston could really learn a lot and really benefit from having a head coach like Bruce Arians around. The sixth head coach I want to talk about, the one, the last and final confirmed head coach so far in the NFL is Vic Fiongio. The I hope I'm saying that right. I'm probably saying it dead wrong. I just read it once. He's the former Bears uh, defensive coordinator. Smart guy. I've watched a lot of Bears game, he's games. He really understands defensive schemes. And he's going to do a good job. The Broncos have a lot of really good defensive personnel around. And their new head coach is really going to do, I think, a lot of good stuff with their personnel. So defense, Broncos, they're great. I love that. Here's the problem. We all assume that the Broncos are going to hire a rookie or going to draft a rookie quarterback, which means you're going to have Case Keenum and a rookie quarterback to be the two Broncos quarterbacks going into next year. If you're going to build around a rookie quarterback... I'm sorry. I hate to say this. I think he's a great head coach, a great coach. Vic Fiangio. I think that's his name. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I read it once. Who knows? But I don't know he's going to work with a rookie quarterback. Rookie quarterbacks traditionally need offensive head coaches. We've seen the defensive coach rookie quarterback thing. It doesn't work well. Todd Bowles got fired. Jeff Fisher got fired. Steve Wilkes got fired. Coach after coach after coach. Defensive head coaches and rookie quarterbacks do not seem to pan out very well. And so it's an interesting hire for the Broncos. I think they brought in a head coach who has a great understanding of defenses. However, I don't know that he's going to be what the Broncos need 
when they have a rookie quarterback on their roster. So those are the six coaches that have been hired. Most of them pretty good. Broncos are concerning, like not concerning, interesting, because again, it's a great coach. He's got great personnel. I don't know he's going to do good for quarterbacks. The only coach I'm really concerned about is Matt LaFleur, the Packers head coach. Although let's be honest, I don't think highly of Aaron Rodgers. So almost no matter who they chose, I would have been concerned. I would have felt better though if the Packers had hired a defensive-minded head coach to take over the defense and let Aaron Rodgers take care of the offense. Now, there are two head coaches that do, two teams left that do not have head coaches. The Bengals have not named a head coach, and the Dolphins have not named officially a head coach. Let's talk about the Bengals first. The Bengals are likely hiring the Rams quarterback coach, Zach Taylor, to be their head coach. And uh, the reason why this won't be official for a while is they have to wait until the Rams are officially out of the playoffs. Um, I have no idea if Zach Taylor is going to be a good coach for the Bengals or not. Um, But I will say this. The Bengals have played things really, really safe the last couple of years. They've stuck with Andy Dalton, who's not very good. They've stuck with Marvin Lewis, who's who's marginal. He's a middle-of-the-road coach who's fine. He's about 7-9 every year. And so... I like that the Bengals are taking a risk on a different coach, different approach, offensive young guy. And maybe Zach Taylor is exactly what the Bengals need. Maybe he will revitalize Andy Dalton and fix his career. Or maybe they'll move on from Andy Dalton because they're taking risks now. And they'll go get a young franchise quarterback and build around that guy. Either way, I really like what the Bengals are doing with Zach Taylor. If he's indeed the head coach, that's a very interesting hire. It might fail and blow up completely. But at the very least, it's very, very interesting. Now, the Dolphins. The Dolphins need a head coach, and I I have no sympathy for them. They let a great head coach walk out of their building. The Miami Dolphins unjustly fired Adam Gase, a guy who did a great job for them for years. The problem in Miami was their quarterback, Ryan Tannehill, wasn't very good. I was excited for the Dolphins. I thought the Dolphins are going to move on from Ryan Tannehill. They're going to draft a quarterback. And Adam Gase can finally get the guy he needs. Well, no. The Dolphins have kept Ryan Tannehill on the roster. But they got rid of their head coach, Adam Gase. And that's weird to me. I'm happy Adam Gase landed in New York. He's got a great quarterback, Sam Darnold. I think that's a match made in heaven. And if I was a coach, a prospective coach looking at the Dolphins, why would I want to go there? They just got rid of a coach I respect. A coach they. If I'm an NFL coach, I look at... Adam Gase and go, that guy's not a terrible coach. You fired him and you don't have a quarterback. So you're not going to be fair to me necessarily. You might unjustly fire me and you might not let me have a quarterback to build around. Why would I want to go to the Miami Dolphins? In fact, it's so bad. The Dolphins are considering just hiring their offensive coordinator for last from last year, making him their head coach, which is just bizarre and weird. It's just like you're going to keep basically Adam Gase's guy and make him the head coach. That just means you have no options. And so I think Dolphins are in trouble. I think it's their fault. They caused a problem by firing Adam Gase unjustly. And now I think they're going to get a pretty crappy head coach as a result. Okay, we have a great show today. I want to talk about the national championship. We'll talk about the NFL playoffs, the divisional round of the playoffs. We're going to talk about the Colts. We're going to talk about, again, a lot. We're going to dive deep into... Clemson, Alabama. I watched that game three times this weekend because I'm a total nerd. And uh, I think that's where we should go next. So, earlier this week, in the college football national championship 
Clemson beat Alabama 44-16. to It was shocking. It surprised me. Clemson dominated Alabama thoroughly. I recorded the game. I watched it three times since it came out, since it happened on Monday. And I told someone I was watching it again because I was curious to see what happened. You know, why did Alabama lose? And someone told me they were like, well, Clemson came to win and Alabama sucked. And it's so annoying. I don't like when casual football fans say things like that. Because what are you telling me that Alabama came to lose? What does that even mean? I was really curious. What happened? There's so much more behind this. And I, I came down to three big reasons why Clemson was able to dominate Alabama. The first one, truthfully, is kind of, um, we learned something. During the national championship, we learned that Tua Tungavaloa, the Alabama quarterback, is simply not ready to enter the NFL. I know that's silly, but a lot of people say, Tua, NFL ready. Not true. In the NFL, you have two big things you got to deal with. The first one's a messy pocket. People all around you guys hitting you almost every play. People, bodies all around a messy pocket. The second thing you have to deal with consistently in the NFL is defenses disguising their coverage. It'll look one way before the snap. The ball snap, they do something totally different. Quarterbacks get tricked. A messy pocket and disguised coverages. That is a lot of what Clemson did against Alabama in the national championship. In fact, I would say that Clemson's defensive game plan was nearly flawless. It was fantastic. This is the first time Alabama's quarterback, Tua, has had to play a game under NFL conditions. Or Maybe the Georgia game is another example. But Clemson has the best defensive line in football. They In college football, they're fantastic. Clemson was giving Tua trouble all night long. Kind of hitting him a lot, giving him constant pressure. They made him move around in the pocket. It was ugly. And the pressure got to Tua Tungavaloa. In the second half, instead of leaning, instead of stepping into his throws, he was kind of fading away and leaning away from his passes, hurting his accuracy. And look, I understand it's hard to play in a messy pocket. I've played quarterback. I played in college. Uh, it's, it's really difficult to play while guys are trying to rip your face, your head off and inches away from you. But it's, it's something you got to do in the NFL. So one thing, Clemson's pressure got to Tua. He did not play well in a messy pocket. The other thing is that Clemson's defensive scheme was outstanding. It was fantastic. Tua threw two interceptions on plays where Clemson's defense disguised their coverage and baited Tua into throwing the ball. So before the snap, Clemson would line up in one coverage. And then when the ball was snapped, their guys would run to their different places and play a different coverage than it looked like. For example, on Tua's second interception, the corner sat in the flat. That's something, it's, it's near the line of scrimmage, near the wide receiver. And there were two high safeties pre-snap, making it look like cover two. Now, when the ball was snapped, the corner turned and ran to do a deep spot downfield. And the two safeties at the top of the screen, at two high safeties, adjusted their coverage, moving over. And so pre-snap, this looked like base cover two. Post-snap, the actual coverage they ran was cloud coverage, which is a type of cover three. One, the corner that bailed has a third of the field. The two safeties have the middle third and the right third of the field. So Tua ran the play assuming it was cover two, and that's why he threw an interception. He threw the ball where he should have against cover two, but another corner came out of where he didn't expect another corner came and picked off the pass deep downfield. So quarterbacks are taught that pre-snap you have to build a hypothesis. You know, 
based on the way defenders are lined up, it looks like X coverage. Looks like cover one or cover two, whatever coverage you think it is pre-snap. But after the ball is snapped, post-snap, you have to confirm your belief. Oh yeah, the corner did sit in the flat, therefore it is cover two. Tua didn't confirm his belief. He went on the assumption that what he saw pre-snap is what indeed they ran. That is why Clemson baited and how Clemson baited Tua into throwing two interceptions. Tua twice did not confirm his belief. Pre-snap, he read one coverage. Clemson didn't run the coverage they lined up in. And Tua threw interceptions because of it. It's ugly. It's a painful loss. I feel bad for Tua. He didn't read the field very well. In fact, he had a big sack. or he, he He missed a big blitz later in the game where a blitzer came from the left. The running back released was wide open. He didn't throw him the ball. Uh, These are painful, painful lessons for Tua to learn. But I think he's going to also grow a lot as a quarterback from watching the Clemson game. When he goes back and watches the film from this game, it's going to make Tua a better quarterback. He's going to learn tremendously. I think it's really interesting. So as a college football player, Tua is in a great spot. Look, he's going to win a lot of games. Alabama is a great spot for a quarterback. Win a bunch of games, have a ton of fun, play with really talented teammates, If you want to play in college football, have a great time. Alabama is a spot to be as a quarterback. But as a future NFL quarterback, Tua is going to have to overcome the decision he made in going to Alabama. He's not being challenged in like 90% of his games. Most of the time, Alabama's offensive line is so good and his receivers are so talented. He doesn't have to operate the way you would in an NFL game. He can sit back in the pocket with no pressure. He can throw the ball up to receivers who make incredible plays. Tua has not had to deal with some of the challenges that other quarterbacks do at other programs, which make him a little bit behind when it comes to NFL preparedness. I believe Tua is going to continue to improve. But right now, based on the things we saw against Clemson, Tua didn't handle pressure very well. He faded away from throws. He didn't step into things. He didn't recognize blitzes very well. And Tua really got fooled multiple times by Clemson's coverage. Again, he didn't confirm the belief. Pre-snap, it looked like cover two. Post-snap, you got to make sure it's actually cover two. And twice, on both interceptions, Tua didn't do that. And so we've seen some holes now in Tua's game, which isn't, it's not a time to panic. But right now, Tua's not ready to enter the NFL. That's all that means. Doesn't mean he can't get better. Doesn't mean he won't. I think he will. And I think I'm, honestly, as a fan of Tua, a guy who believes he's a great NFL quarterback down the road. I think his future lies in the NFL. I'm so glad Tua had this experience of losing to Clemson. It's an embarrassing loss. This painful loss with some really ugly plays from Tua is actually going to be good for him because he's going to watch the film and learn from those mistakes and grow as a player. And so that's what I'm most excited to watch from Tua down the road is how does he learn from this game film? Does he start to recognize blitzes a little better? Does he understand when teams are trying to fool him with disguising coverages? That's what I want to see from Tua down the road. And I think, I personally believe he's going to improve and grow as a quarterback. So that's one reason why Clemson dominated Alabama. The second reason why Clemson beat Alabama was Clemson simply outcoached Alabama. Multiple times in key moments, Alabama made really poor play calls. For example, there was that terrible fake field goal on fourth and long. I don't know what you were thinking. I thought the field goal was going to put it into a two-possession game. I was really excited. Alabama ran a terrible, terrible fake field goal. Then later on fourth fourth and goal, near the end of the game, Alabama ran a quarterback sweep. They said, Tua, just run the ball to the outside. That's a terrible, terrible decision. I would have come up with something more creative. So multiple times, not only in play calling, but also scheme, 
Clemson beat Alabama. Clemson's defensive coordinator, Brent Venables, had an incredible game plan. But it's not just that Brent Venables had a great game plan. It's the fact that Clemson's players were able to execute the wonderfully designed game plan. That's so impressive. It's one thing to have a plan. It's another thing to actually follow through and have your guys execute it. So Brent Venables, listen to that name, Brent Venables. He's Clemson's defensive coordinator. Earlier in July 2018, he signed a five-year deal worth $11.6 million. He delivers every single ounce of that money. I think eventually you're going to hear Brent Venables' name brought up as a head coaching candidate. I really hope Brent Venables stays at Clemson. I do. Um, I, I think that he's got an incredible thing going. I mean, we see a lot of guys have a great thing going, and they bail early. They leave the dynasty. A great example that recently was North Dakota State. They're a Division I AA team, an FCS team. They just won their fourth national championship in five seasons. Actually, it's their seventh national championship since 2011. That means NDSU, North Dakota State University, has won every, a national championship every single season except for 2016 and last since 2011. And Chris Kleiman is NDSU's head coach. He just left. He's leaving after five seasons and four national championships. Again, four of those seven national championships, he was the head coach. He's leaving from NDSU to go to Kansas State. He's leaving a dynasty behind. And I, look, I love Chris Kleiman. I hope he has a great career. He's not going to be nearly as successful at Kansas State as he was at North Dakota State. It's just not going to happen. You can't duplicate that success. So I think Chris Kleiman's honestly making a mistake leaving a dynasty behind. And I really hope Brent Venables doesn't do something similar. Brent Venables is an unbelievable defensive coordinator. He's great for his role. He's an integral part of what Clemson does. And if we're going to keep this Alabama-Clemson rivalry going, Brent Venables being at Clemson is a huge part of that. I hope he stays at Clemson and lets the dynasty play out. I think the next four to five seasons between Alabama and Clemson is going to be a slugfest, a battle in recruiting, a battle in the college football playoff. It's going to be fun. I can't wait to see it. Um, I think it's interesting to look at the differences as well as the similarities between Alabama's head coach, Nick Saban, and Clemson head, Clemson's head coach, Dabo Sweeney. Here's a weird stat for you. I found this. It's very bizarre. In the last four seasons, both Clemson and Alabama are 55-4 and four with two national championships. It's crazy. They're like identical. They're twins. It's so funny to me. Um, but if you watch the way the two teams simply leave the locker room, there's so much symbolism there. I think it's fascinating, and it really translates to the way that the two head coaches run their programs. So if you watch Nick Saban and Alabama leave the locker room, the way they run out of the tunnel, Nick Saban is leading his team. Literally, his team is behind him, and Nick Saban leads the way. If you watch Dabo Sweeney, Clemson's head coach, run out of the tunnel, he's arm-in-arm with his players. He's physically with his players. Leading together versus leading the players. It's interesting to me. Uh, Nick Saban's kind of like the stern principal, and Dabo Sweeney's the cool uncle, the older brother, the guy you admire, but he's one of the guys. You respect him. You listen to him, but he's one of you rather than up above you. And so while you respect both Nick Saban and Dabo Sweeney, I have a feeling Dabo Sweeney is far more fun. Alabama is dominated. That's great. But the more you dominate and win, the harder it is to listen to some guy yelling at you to work harder. And that's the way that Nick Saban leads. So I think that based on the styles of the two teams, you know, Clemson's more fun. 
Alabama's a little bit more stern, more grinded out. Based on the wear styles, I think Alabama and Clemson are both exactly where they need to be going into this offseason. Clemson's on top. And, and Dabo Sweeney's message of, let's have fun and win, that works really, really well when you're the top dog. I think it's interesting, you know, the number one recruit from Alabama, Justin Ross, the, guy, the best high school recruit in Alabama last year, didn't go to Auburn, didn't go to Alabama University, he went to Clemson. That's a big message. Recruiting in the South, go, people go, oh man, Nick Saban's not even getting the best recruit out of his own state. That's a big deal. And then in the title game, that same player, Justin Ross, who left Alabama, the state of Alabama, left his home state to go to Clemson. That same player went off, had a bunch of great catches and dominant, had a long touchdown for Clemson against Alabama, against his hometown team. That's a big deal. Clemson dominated Alabama 44-16. to So players in the South, high school football players, look and go, Clemson's having fun. They're landing great recruits, and they beat Alabama pretty heavily. The biggest loss we've ever seen Alabama take. Who would you rather play with? If you're a high school kid in the South, would you rather play with fun Clemson, that fun Dabo Sweeney guy who's in arm with his players and they're winning championships? Or would you rather play for the guy who yells, Nick Saban? This is why Alabama is exactly where they need to be. Right now, as of this offseason, Alabama's an underdog. First time in a long time. And that's exactly where they need to be. Nick Saban's grinded out style, that stern approach. It works better when you're pissed off and trying to get back to the top. As an underdog, getting yelled at motivates you. When you're on top, you go, ah, shut up, old man. It's just a different approach. It's just very different. And so I really, truly believe Clemson, Alabama, the next four or five years is going to be a heavyweight fight. I can't wait to watch how the recruiting plays out. Who gets better recruits? Who recruits better in the South? Where do players from the South want to go? Clemson or Alabama? Stern, fun. Dominated in the national championship. Just lost in the national championship. Who do, where do players go? And how are they going to play each other in the college football playoff? I think that, I know a lot of people are talking about, oh, this team's up and coming, and that team's up and coming. Ohio State, Michigan, ah, ah, ah. I don't know. The teams I'm most interested in right now are Clemson and Alabama. That back and forth, that drama in the South, who's going to dominate in the next couple of years, that is what I want to watch. Clemson, Alabama. I know people are upset. You know, people are like, oh, another boring championship. I loved it. I ate it up. I love that drama between these two head coaches and these two programs. And I guarantee Alabama is going to come looking for revenge in the future against Clemson. So in the national championship, let's, let's round this up. Clemson won for three big reasons. The first one is, Tua struggled. We learned a lot about Tua Tungavaloa in the national championship. He's not NFL ready. Clemson also simply outcoached Alabama. And the third reason is some of the play calling didn't go Alabama's way. There were multiple play calls. I think you could have said, oh, that's holding on a receiver. That's pass interference. Um, I think a few questionable no calls were not the entire difference in the game. But it did, it did have somewhat of an impact on a fourth down, on a big third down. You could argue that both of those could have been pass interference and they weren't called. But most of the reason why Clemson beat Alabama and really dominated Alabama was that Tua sucked and Clemson simply outcoached and out-schemed Alabama in the national championship. Another thing we need to talk about, another narrative that's come up this week, because um, you know how I, 
I stopped listening to the media a long time ago. Um, I'm really struggling with YouTube comments. They're awful. People comment on my weight and my hair. It's like, these aren't about sports. Shut up. Uh, but Instagram is where I get most of my ideas for the show. It's people send me, you know, someone sent me a list of the Colts, their draft picks. Someone sent me, they, people send me questions on Instagram. That's how I uh, interact with people who listen to the show now. And um, a big question from someone this week. Someone asked me this question. Is Trevor Lawrence ready for the NFL? Uh, remember, Clemson's quarterback just had a great game. He's a true freshman. Had 347 yards against Alabama's defense in the national championship. Um, a lot of people are wondering, man, is that getting an NFL quarterback? I think you should slow down just, just a tad. Um, look, I, I love Trevor Lawrence. He's incredible. Fantastic. His deep ball is unreal. His accuracy downfield is what's so impressive. His ability to locate the ball into really tight windows, hey, it's really good. And in the national championship, he did something I really liked. When pressure was on, he stepped into it. He wasn't afraid of getting hit. He stepped into throws and got nailed a couple times, but delivered the ball downfield anyways. That's big time. That's what you want to see from an NFL quarterback, a prospective NFL quarterback. However, Trevor Lawrence is just a freshman. He's got at least two more years in college football before he's ready to go to the NFL. Let's give it some time. Before you anoint Trevor Lawrence, the next Andrew Luck or John Elway or whatever you want to say, um, let's, let's give Trevor Lawrence a little bit of time. There's two things he did against Alabama that were great, um, but also you know, there's, he's not some limitations. Again, against Alabama, his receivers made some fantastic, fantastic catches. I've, I've been very complimentary of Trevor Lawrence's ability to throw the ball downfield. Some of the catches Justin Ross made, one-handed catches, catches along the sideline, that's just throwing up a 50-50 ball and letting a guy make a play. And other times, often during the 2018 season for Clemson, Trevor Lawrence had a really clean pocket, a lot of time to throw. I'm not concerned about his ability to step into the pass rush, but we still I want some more data before I say, best quarterback ever, future NFL number one pick. Probably, right? He's a huge kid, got a big arm, super tall, won a lot of big games. Trevor Lawrence is not phased by pressure. Right now, you can say, yeah, it looks like Trevor Lawrence is a future number one pick. But we're not there yet. We got two more years. Let's just let it play out rather than anointing him the next Andrew Luck right away. And so I feel great about Trevor Lawrence. I think he's a likely a great NFL quarterback. But let's give it two more years and see where we are then. Because you never know what happens. Maybe he gets hit the wrong way, hurts his leg, and then he's shy about getting hit the rest of his career. You never know. Something awful could happen. Um, and maybe he never improves. Maybe, maybe he never you know, makes better throws. Or maybe he just struggles and he parties a lot this offseason. Who knows? There's all kinds of scenarios. All I'm saying is it's a little too early to judge Trevor Lawrence just yet. I love him. Probably number one pick. Like He just looks unbelievable. But let's, let's give the guy two years and see where he's at two years from now. Um, I want to revisit a, a topic I've been saying. I've been talking about all offseason. Uh, it's 18 college football playoff. So, <clears throat> I'm gonna I'm gonna make a statement here. Um, yeah, I'm gonna go back on something I've said all season. Last week I said that the college football playoff should not expand to an 18 playoff. I have changed my mind. I have. I was wrong. I now look at the college football playoff and think, yeah. We probably should expand to an 18 playoff. It makes sense to me now. 
Um, here's what changed my mind. It's actually two things that really, there are three reasons, but two big things made me reconsider my opinion on the college football playoff. The first one was this. I watched Georgia absolutely give basically no effort against Texas in the Sugar Bowl. To them, to Georgia, the Sugar Bowl didn't matter at all. Georgia did not show up with effort against Texas, and that's why Texas won the Sugar Bowl. I don't know what would have happened if they gave the same effort against Texas that they did against Alabama, but Georgia made a bunch of mistakes. They didn't look awake. Georgia didn't look like they cared about their bowl game at all, and I don't know. What would mat- What matters to players? Apparently, the Sugar Bowl doesn't matter to Georgia. A playoff game would have mattered to Georgia. They would have showed up and fought hard for that game. And so an 18 playoff could help eliminate some of those bad bowl games where really good teams simply don't care and don't show up and give minimal effort. That's one thing that adding an 18 playoff would solve is teams like Georgia, who were great, who went toe-to-toe with Alabama, don't have to play in a crappy bowl game against Texas. The second reason why I think an 18 playoff is a really good idea is a guy named Chase Bryce. Chase Bryce is the backup quarterback for Clemson. So again, Clemson, to recap, they beat Alabama 44-16 to in the national championship. But what if I told you they almost missed the playoff? Yeah, it almost wasn't even Clemson in the four-team playoff. Against Syracuse, Trevor Lawrence, their quarterback got hurt. And backup quarterback Chase Bryce came in the game and led Clemson to a come-from-behind win, securing Clemson's perfect record to that point and helped their season stay alive. If Chase Bryce doesn't exist, if that guy doesn't come in and save the day for Clemson, they're not in the national championship. They're not even in the college football playoff. You're telling me a one-loss Clemson team might not have gotten in because one-loss Clemson or one-loss Ohio State probably would have gotten in, or Georgia, who went toe-to-toe with Alabama two weeks ago in the national championship, they probably would have got in. So it's very likely the team that won the national championship and dominated Alabama could have almost not even made the college football playoff because they weren't, quote, perfect. And I think this strive for perfection, this idea that we got to have a perfect record to make the college football playoff, I'm over it. I think it's not good. I think it hurts college football. It's why teams like Alabama don't make a lot of challenging games in their schedule. I mean, week 11, Alabama literally played Citadel this year. Citadel. I don't even know who that is. I I have no idea where that is. I've never heard of that team until this year. But it's because Alabama knows they can't afford to lose a non-conference game and hurt their perfect record. Every team knows how important it is to go have a perfect season if you want to play in the college football playoff. That's why the college football playoffs should expand to eight teams. Look, it would save bad teams from missing out. You don't want a team like Clemson not making it into the, into the college football playoff because he had one bad game or had one guy get hurt for the second half of the game. Ohio State lost to Purdue. It looked like a fluke to me. We saw Ohio State dominated Washington in three quarters of that game. They were far better than Washington. They didn't deserve in the Rose Bowl. They didn't deserve to be in the Rose Bowl. I think the college football playoffs should expand. Again, good teams won't miss out. Good players will have a reason to care about bowl games. You don't want teams like Georgia playing in meaningless bowl games. Give them a reason to care. Put great teams like Georgia in a playoff and give them a reason to fight really hard to win a game. And the third reason why the college football playoff should expand. 
is it would help eliminate some of teams scheduling really, really easy games just to get in. We might see one more great big game in the year because if they know we can lose a game and still make it in, they might take a little bit more risks with bigger and better games, non-conference games. We might see Michigan-Alabama. We might see, I, I don't list any game. Like, what's your dream game? Clemson-Ohio State week one? Something like that. We might see that more because they know if we lose, our season isn't over. If we have a good, a close loss to a really good team, we still have a chance to make it into the eight-team playoff. That is why the college football playoff should expand. Oh, man. Uh, we got two topics left I want to talk about. They're quick, and they're really interesting, I think. First one is this. The Colts absolutely nailed the 2018 NFL draft. It's, it's unbelievable. You're looking at the records, looking at the, the results. The general manager, Chris Ballard, for the Colts should be absolutely proud. Here's how things worked out. So the draft was last year. We played the whole season. After the season is now over, here's what we learned from the 2018 NFL draft. The first round by the Colts, first round draft pick by the Colts was Quentin Nelson, a guard from Notre Dame. He was an all pro. That's pretty good. Your first round draft pick, an all pro, that's pretty rare. Oh, and by the way, the second round draft pick, the first, the second pick by the Colts, Darius Leonard, a linebacker, also became an all pro. Right there, that's already a great draft. That's better than most drafts for most teams normally. I mean, you got two great players, incredible. But here's why the Colts should be so proud and why it's really so impressive what the Colts did last year. After drafting Darius Leonard, the Colts drafted Braden Smith, their starting right tackle. Then in the second round, later in the second round, they drafted Kamoko Ture, who started, who played in 14 games, started in three, had four sacks this year. Then they drafted Tyquan Lewis, who started six games for the Colts this year, a defensive end kind of detackle type guy. That's all in the second, first and second round. Then in the fourth round, they drafted running back Naheem Hines, who started four games and had 939 yards from scrimmage. And in total, here's what's incredible. Again, two all pros that are rookies. A bunch of starters in the NFL draft last year for the Colts. This, Despite all those incredible st- stats, this is the most important fact from the Colts' 2018 draft class. All 11 players made the roster. All 11 players the Colts drafted in 2018 made the roster. That's unheard of. Unbelievable. I know you can say, well, the Colts had a bad roster. Of course they made it. Sure, but even the Patriots don't do that. I mean, it's it's an unbelievable fact that all 11 players the Colts drafted made the roster. It goes to show how bad Ryan Grigson was, but really how great Chris Ballard is as a general manager. Um, this round of applause for Chris Ballard, the Colts general manager. He did a great job building a really good team around Andrew Luck and a team that made the playoffs, a team that was horrible last year. It really revived their season and made the playoffs this year. Uh, just round of applause all around. The Colts are on the up and up, and it's in large part because of their genius general manager who did a fantastic job in the 2018 NFL draft. Okay. Um, the divisional playoffs are coming up this week, this weekend. And so I want to talk about that. There are, there are four monster games this weekend in the NFL divisional round of the playoffs. So I want to talk about Sunday night first, the Eagles versus the Saints. This should have been the NFC National Championship game last year. And I, personally, I want to see the Saints get to the playoffs. I want to see the Saints and the Chargers. That's kind of my dream. Um, so as a guy rooting for the Saints, 
I am terrified, terrified of the Eagles because Nick Foles, the Eagles backup, backup quarterback, who's now the starter, very weird. Nick Foles is playing unbelievable football right now. Here's what he's doing that I love the most. The way Nick Foles is handling pressure. He's stepping into throws, getting nailed as he throws, still delivering great, accurate footballs. That's high-level stuff that a lot of even NFL starting quarterbacks don't do that you want to see them do. Right now, Nick Foles is playing like an NFL starting quarterback, a guy that clearly somebody's going to take a chance on and sign next year. Maybe the Dolphins. I don't know. Some team is going to sign Nick Foles, and I think he's going to play really well for them. So, uh, man, I as a guy rooting for the Saints, I'm terrified of the Eagles. And I love Nick Foles. I mean, I, I wouldn't be too upset if Nick Foles went on to win the Super Bowl again. I, I'd be really, really cool. Um, a guy who once was a starting quarterback, got benched, was a backup winning, winning a Super Bowl, and now has earned the right to become probably a starting quarterback again in the NFL. The Nick Foles story is just too good to be true. And the guy has battled so hard in his career. Here's what's also interesting. If you look at the way the NFC lines up, you have the Saints and the Eagles and the Cowboys and the Rams. If the Eagles can beat the Saints, they move on to play either the Eagles or the Cowboys and the Rams. Both teams at the Rams, the Eagles could very much beat. The Eagles definitely have a chance to go back to the Super Bowl this year, and that's just unfathomable. And how cool would that be if Nick Foles went to two straight Super Bowls with the same exact storyline? Unbelievable. Here's what's even cooler. If the Eagles and the Cowboys both win this weekend, that would mean the NFC Championship game is a divisional matchup, a matchup between two division rivals, the Eagles and the Cowboys. How cool would that be? An NFC East, I guess, NFC Championship game? That'd be unbelievable. I would love that. That'd be so fun. That sounds like Sunday Night Football all over again. I think we Literally, I think that was a Sunday Night Football game this year, was Cowboys and Eagles. And so... That is what I want to see. I would love to see that. Basically, my point is this. No matter what happens in the NFC, it's going to be a great, great scenario. I think it's going to be very interesting. Now, the Cowboys have a very, very good chance to beat the Rams this weekend. Um, I am not a big believer in Jared Goff. Jared Goff has really been struggling as of late against pressure. And what we learned is that the way to beat the Rams is to hit Jared Goff. Put bodies around him. Hit him in the shoulder, tap him, whatever. Make Jared Goff uncomfortable. And when he's uncomfortable in the pocket, he doesn't play very well. The Cowboys have exactly the personnel to make Jared Goff uncomfortable. It's fantastic. Um, Jared Goff's going to get hit a lot, and I really want to see how he handles it. Can the Rams actually beat the Cowboys? Because I know the Eagles could beat the Cowboys. Could Jared Goff, is he up to the challenge? Can he handle the pressure? Literally, not like the physical pressure from the media. Can he, not not the, the media's pressure, can Jared Goff handle getting hit over and over and over again and deal with that? Can he do that and beat the Cowboys on, I think it's Saturday? That's what I want to see. That is what is so fascinating between the Eagles and the Cowboys. Now, the AFC playoffs, as great as the NFC is, the AFC is even more compelling. The Colts and Chiefs, and then you also have the Patriots and the Chargers. Two great games. One game has two young quarterbacks. Possible MVP candidates. The other team has two older quarterbacks, two veteran quarterbacks who've been through a lot and had really storied, probably Hall of Fame careers. Um, it's just the storylines are unbelievable here. You have the Chiefs probably are going to beat the Colts in Kansas City. I love the Chiefs. I think they're a little better team. But the Colts are still on fire. Don't count out Andrew Luck. Andrew Luck does have a chance to beat 
Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs. And then on the other side, Sunday morning in New England, you have 37-year-old Phillip Rivers versus 41-year-old Tom Brady, the two, two of the older quarterbacks in the NFL, probably having Hall of Fame careers. It's going to be fun. I think the Chargers are a better team. They should win. But this is still Tom Brady and still the New England Patriots. So, man, um, compelling, interesting. You remember when everyone said that the Patriots season was over? The Patriots, they're a mess. They're imploding. It's terrible. What happens if the Patriots make it to the AFC Championship game? What will the narrative be then? Will people still be saying, well, next year, though, they're done. It's over. (sighs) We count out the Patriots every year. And yet they're still in this spot every single year. Um, my only question, my fear maybe for Philip Rivers is, can he handle the pressure from the media, from the big moment? We've seen Philip Rivers in the past bending games like this, and he hasn't won, he hasn't delivered. He went 14-2 and two once and lost. And so I'm really curious to see what, what does Philip Rivers do? How does he respond to this high-pressure, very interesting moment? Could he pull John Elway? Remember John Elway? Didn't win a Super Bowl for years in his life. And then like his one of his final his two final years, he won back-to-back Super Bowls and kind of got the monkey off his back. Could we see something very similar happen to Phillip Rivers where John Elway didn't have a great roster for years? And then the best rosters John Elway ever got were later in his career and he took advantage. Could Phillip Rivers do something very similar to John Elway? He has a great roster right now with the Chargers. He's going to have a great roster again next year. Could Phillip Rivers take advantage of these great great years he's got of the the great roster the Chargers have and pull out a Super Bowl late in his career that's what I want to see that is why the storylines right now in the NFL playoffs are so fantastic Nick Foles Drew Brees Phillip Rivers is old Tom Brady's older but Patrick Mahomes is shredding the NFL this young guy who's unbelievable like kind of Trevor Lawrence like Andrew Luck has been unappreciated for years Dak Prescott what if Dak Prescott gets to the Super Bowl the guy who's been much maligned even by me Every single team in the playoffs right now is a great story and a reason for you to care, except for me. Maybe I didn't talk about the Rams. I think the Rams are interesting, but they're how crazy is that? The, the least interesting team right now is the LA Rams. And the Rams this year were like the talk of the town for months. The NFL playoffs, I'm, I'm so, I'm just nerding out, like talking to myself in my room. Uh, but man, I am, I'm so excited for this weekend and so excited in general. I just love football. I love the NFL. It's my favorite sport. And, uh, man, it's just a fun thing to nerd out about. Guys, um, that's my podcast. I, I, I actually, I'll make predictions real quick if you want. My my guess is Chargers beat the Patriots. The Chiefs probably beat the Colts. The Saints probably beat the Eagles. And the I, I think the Cowboys are going to beat the Rams. I'm on board with the Cowboys because Jared Goff's going to struggle. Saints going to win. Cowboys are going to win. Chiefs are going to win. And the Chargers are going to win. So we'll get Chiefs, Chargers, and the, NFC, and the AFC Championship and we'll get Cowboys-Saints in the NFC Championship. And if you remember, Saints-Cowboys a couple weeks ago was a game where it was Thursday Night Football, and the Cowboys beat the Saints and really embarrassed them on Thursday Night Football. Look, every possible scenario I can think of is fantastic. Guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, I really appreciate it. You can follow the show on, I guess, subscribe to Strong Opinion Sports on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, everywhere. I don't know. Just help me grow by telling your friends about the show. I hate self-promotion. It's weird. I got to go work out. I got a new thing coming. I can't tell you guys about yet, but I got to go to the gym in a couple minutes. And so uh, my name is Zach Schaumler. Thank you so much for listening. Bam, bam, bam. We are done.